Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jeremy Goodwin. Today we convene this month's Legal Roundtable, where we delve into some of the latest regional and national news stories pertaining to the law. As always, there is a lot to discuss, and joining me in studio today to do just that, we have Bill Freivigal. He's professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. And we welcome Jacqueline Cutting bowder Managing Attorney for Civil Rights and Systemic Litigation at Art City Defenders. Bill, Mark, and Jacqueline, welcome to the program. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having yeah. us. Well, before we dive into this, we do want to mention to our listeners, we are recording this conversation on Wednesday afternoon as former special counsel Robert Mueller testifies before Congress. We figured we're going to let NPR's day-long coverage of that testimony on Wednesday stand on its own for now, and we'll keep the focus on some other issues that have not been getting round-the-clock coverage this week. We will, of course, keep talking about Mueller and his testimony on future episodes of the show, though. But for now, let's take a look at the Supreme Court. Its 2018-2019 term just ended. This gives us a lot of material to look at. As always, there was a lot of news there, including a lot of correspondence, we'll say, between the White House and the court, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. But in terms of legal precedent, I'm wondering, are there particular rulings in this term that anyone would point to as some of the more significant ones? Mark? So I'm happy to start. So one of the cases I thought was interesting, I don't know that it's the most important decision, but I just thought it was interesting, was this American Legion case. The case involves a a 40-foot cross, Christian cross, that's erected in suburban Washington, D.C. It's been there since World War One, right after World War One, and it was a monument to the fallen in World War One. And it was recently challenged by some citizens saying, this is on government land, so this is a uh, an endorsement by the government of the Christian religion, and we need to take it down. And so the Supreme Court, it, 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 they lost it district or they, they won a district court. They lost at uh, or the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals saying we should you should have to take the cross down. Okay. Uh, the, the state lost, and then uh, and the American Legion, and then the Supreme Court said no, no, you can keep it up. And basically, there's been this test called the Lemon Test based on this case with the word lemon in it, and um, which is not a great, um, great. Uh, legal precedent, and the, the the courts have kind of complained about it, and and so I think some people were thinking, well, they might overturn the Lemon case and come up with a new rule. Um, yeah, this doesn't seem to be like a new dispute, right? The idea of no, it's the been coming up. Symbol on public. Yeah, grounds. but it just but the issue just came up, yeah. and that was actually one of an interesting issue which you identify because Clarence Thomas spent a lot of his decision talking about standing and whether or not you could even you know had standing to because it had been to, there to so long. To challenge its presence. But, but basically, the way I read it, you know, kind of in layman's terms, what the Supreme Court seemed to be saying is, if you have something like this and it's been up for a long time, yeah, we're going to let things slide. And we're going to say that there's a secular purpose and that's enough. But one of the factors they were really looking at, the fact, which you just identified, that it had been up there for, you know, almost 100 years. And so it, um, we're not going to say it's... A, a government sanctioned endorsement of religion. Mm. Um, but So there's a difference between allowing something to remain in place and putting yeah, something Yeah, I think if you tried to do that right now, you wouldn't. The, but what I found interesting about it was that they did not overturn the Lemon case, which I think there was a lot of discussion this term about stare decisis, which is this idea that we should defer to previous decisions. Mm-hmm. And 
And I think Roberts is very big on not making it look like they're overturning previous decisions. And I think that may have been part of it. I think also this case, as I recall, had nine separate opinions. Um, I think I'm right about that. But you had a plurality, but not a real clear rule of law, which I think is another thing. We've got two new justices. Kennedy, who was the swing justice, is gone. And so things are very much in flux. And I think something that folks are looking at in this newly constituted court is exactly how they're going to deal with precedent, particularly uh, precedents that are maybe only a decade or two old. Like maybe like uh, the Roe. Like, for instance, Roe v. Wade. <laughs> except yeah. except Roe Ro v. Wade is 50 years old. So, okay. So yeah. it's not like just a— Yeah, it's it, not a new thing. It, right? it's, it's not that different than the, the, the church-state— uh, decisions has come out of the 60s. So on this cross case, I mean, the result is pretty much the same as as things have come out in recent court terms. It's something that's historical and been there for a long time, uh, sort of gets grandfathered in. Uh, but you know you can't have you can't be the chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court and require to have the Ten Commandments in the in the in the courthouse. Or you you know a judge can't nail up the Ten Commandments on his wall. Uh, but you can have the court said before you Texas state grounds could have a a monument to the to the Ten Commandments. Um, I think this court will definitely be more. Uh, in favor of approving religious right. uh, observances and religious, uh, you know, references to religion, um, Kennedy uh, was was uh, pretty much, uh, you know, pretty much. Uh, well, Kennedy, for example, was the key vote in deciding that a graduation student prayer uh, violated the establishment clause. So, so replacing uh, Kennedy by Kavanaugh makes the court. Um, more of a, a, a pro-religion court. Mm -hmm. Well, it was a busy term. Was there another thing that came up this this year that seems to you, Bill, is particularly significant? Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't like a block. There weren't yeah. blockbuster decisions, a really important decision, uh, which was not that, uh, I guess, surprising. In the end, was the Supreme Court uh, uh, saying that they were not going to constitutionalize the issue of partisan gerrymandering. You know, they said partisan gerrymanders have been around forever. We can't find any kind of like uh, judicially manageable standard that we can use to decide when is a gerrymander um, unconstitutional and when unconstitutionally unfair and when is it not. And so there's, there's no uh, I know a gerrymander when I see it. There's, that's right. There's no. <laughs> Actually, that's, <laughs> that's like the pornography thing. And right. some of the commentators have <laughs> said exactly that, that. Yeah. And yeah. you don't have that. Except the, the lower courts had been uh, developing and using some tests. And, uh, you know, another thing that's really interesting about this decision is that the court separated the idea of political gerrymandering from racial um, gerrymandering and one person, one vote types of gerrymandering. And, you know, it seems on some levels to be somewhat of an intellectual distinction. A lot of times if you're talking about gerrymandering because people live in a certain neighborhood, the neighborhoods that we live in are often based on um, especially in St. Louis, on racial issues. It can also be based sometimes on political issues. People tend to like to live near people that think and act the way that they do. And so even the court, even though the court sort of draws this political distinction, I'm not sure in practice if it really is a real distinction. And so I think that the decision in some ways is going to um, – create some confusion in the sense that people may have difficulty 
um, or there may be more uh, litigation about is is this a political gerrymandering decision or is this a racial gerrymandering decision? So I don't think this is the last we've heard on that this. That sounds extremely sticky. Yes. Oh. Right. Uh, but, uh, I, but I do think the court wants to try to draw uh, draw a bright line and get out of it. Yes. Get out of yes. it. So yes. they've been, for, for about 20 years, they've been saying, well, there might be some sort of case where, I mean, especially Justice Kennedy said, you know, there, there might be some kind of case where there is a, an unconstitutional political gerrymander, but we've got to figure out how to determine what that is. Now, basically, the court says we can't. That That is not something a court could do. It's a political question. The political branches have got to decide that. And, you know, they sort of the end of the opinion, they sort of are saying, you know, this doesn't mean we think it's a great idea to have political gerrymanders. Uh, and look, there's a bunch of legislatures and states that are doing something about it. And Missouri, you know, would, would be one right. that, uh, you know, would sort of fit in that category, although we'll see how that works out. So I think that's that's the next step is I think – um, there may be what what Jacqueline said. This people trying to get it into the racial thing, but then there are also maybe more lawsuits in state court under state constitutions. And then, like what happened in Missouri, we had the wasn't that Amendment One? Um, and so the clean um, Missouri. What the, the clean, clean Missouri, Missouri one, mm-hmm. right? And so you're going to see probably not coming from legislatures because they're political animals. This is what they do. But I could see um, statewide initiatives in other places and and efforts to try and undo this. But I mean, I think the same issue the Supreme Court has, it's like what Jacqueline said, people segregate, you know, rural areas are more Republican, urban areas are more Democrat, Democratic. So in Missouri, even if you have a percentage, it's going to be tough to draw districts if you know, 90% of the people in the urban area are all Democrats. You, you, we're, we're packing and cracking ourselves by, by And the with the live. increased tribalism in American politics, yeah, right. it's getting harder and harder to draw distinctions between, uh, you know, one's, one's identity is tied into one's politics right now pretty closely in a lot of debates. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I mean, and let's make clear, Republicans and Democrats alike do this. Yeah. Yes. In Illinois, uh, the Democrats gerrymander. In Maryland, the case before... One of the cases before the Supreme Court, it's, it was the Democrats. Um, a case a, couple, a year or two ago from Wisconsin was the Republicans. Generally, the Republicans have been more successful, I would say, yeah, over the whole map of the United States and having political gerrymanders that help them uh, have more representatives. Like in the Wisconsin case, you know, even they had their gerrymander was set up in such a way that even if they got Republicans got far less than fifty percent of the votes, they still could win a supermajority in the legislature. Yeah, and I feel a little remiss if I don't mention that, of course, the term gerrymandering is a contribution to the lexicon by a political cartoonist with respect to the household name Elbridge Jerry, the Massachusetts governor and former vice president, uh, and the idea that these congressional districts are, or districts for any legislature are constructed in such a strangely shaped way that it looks like a salamander. I don't know what a salamander looks like. I'm I'm not an expert on that. (laughs) I'm not either. (laughs) But but we are are supposed to have compact districts, and a salamander is not compact. Okay, and that's that's written into the law? I do know that. Yeah, Yeah, the the compact, I think that's one of the... the, Compactness is one of the the criteria. criteria. It doesn't always work out that way, though. Yeah, right. Well, we do need to take a quick break, so we'll do that. But we will be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
And welcome back to our discussion on some of the latest regional and national news stories, all having to do with the law. Um, one overall observation about the last two Supreme Court terms is that the Trump administration seems to spend a lot of time arguing before the court uh, compared to other administrations. Is that, a, is that a fair observation? I think so. Bill? I think probably so. Yes. Jacqueline? Yes. Yeah. I mean, they, they ask for a lot of, uh, you know, like emergency uh, actions by the Supreme Court, either to speed up some sort of appeal or to delay something. Uh, and so, yes, there's been a lot of uh, sort of extraordinary writs that they have filed before the Supreme mm. Court. And on that point specifically, there, there's a thing called an emergency application, which we've heard a lot about lately. What What's that? Well, I mean, that, that's in the kind of situation where, let's say, a lower court judge um, uh, issues an injunction, which means an order to stop something. Let's say they issue, let's say a lower court judge issues a nationwide injunction stopping the enforcement of some Trump administration uh, policy change, whether it be on immigration or health care or, or whatever. And then the, the Trump administration doesn't want that um, court order to go into effect. So they go to the Supreme Court and 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 say, you know, please, you know, stay this, in other words, delay the enforcement of this injunction until the case makes its way through the Supreme Court. That'd be an example. And the word emergency is not really a term of art there, right? I mean, th these are time-sensitive requests that are for extraordinary situations. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and they used to be kind of rare, right? And... Uh, Washington Post columnist Linda Greenhouse uh, took a look at a, an upcoming article in the Harvard Law Review to crunch some of the numbers on this. And she came up with, with these numbers. The George W. Bush administration uh, filed these emergency applications six times in the eight years. Uh, President Obama made these emergency requests four times in his eight years. Uh, if anyone doesn't happen to know the number offhand, would you like to take a, a gander at how many uh, the Trump administration has filed? In the, around 30. Yeah, 28. Wow. 28 <laughs> and, and, and counting, I suppose. <laughs> uh, what, does that, what does that tell you about just the, the relationship between branches of government right now? Jacqueline, any thoughts? Well, um, I think that, um, that one of the things that we're seeing is that the courts are curbing some of the decisions that are being made by the executive branch and that... Um, rather than going through the normal process, the normal appellate process, that this administration is choosing to request uh, that these be heard uh, in an emergency way. And I, I think that um, it's a response on some levels to the fact that, that they are losing consistently at the lower court level and there's a sense of not trusting the legal process hmm. to resolve the issue, or at least that's my take on it. And, and perhaps a sense in the Justice Department that the current Supreme Court might, might be more friendly to, to their argument, basically. But, I think yeah. that, that that may be true for some people in the Department of Justice. I mean, I think we need to distinguish between the Department of Justice political appointees and the Department of Justice employees and lawyers that are career um, lawyers and that represent uh, the government th across various different administrations. Um, 
But, but I would say there's definitely a tension between uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court, particularly Chief Justice Roberts, and you know this effort by the Trump administration to get the Supreme Court to be friendly to them. Um, and that sort of showed up in the census case, which is another you know important one that came that was decided uh, decided this year. Um, I think you know I don't think that the, Trump, uh, the Chief Justice has made pretty darn clear that he doesn't like the way the president talks about Obama judges and, uh, you know, implying that anybody appointed by Obama is going to rule against him. Uh, How has Chief Justice Roberts expressed an opinion on that? Well, he actually made a speech Speech about about it. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, But but I but he he ruled against the Trump administration on the census where it looked like, I mean, it appeared after the oral argument in that case as though the administration, you know, this is the question about c- could there be a citizenship uh, question added to the census as the Trump administration want, wanted, to, wants, wanted to do. And after oral argument back in the spring, it looked as though uh, the administration, Trump administration was going to win very easily. Everybody seemed to sort of be on on their side. That's then some, a, the sort of day of analysis of the actual arguments. Oh, in the front day of, of analysis, right. All the conservatives seemed to be on board. And then, you know, some information started coming out, some sort of political, some political operative died. And in his papers, it was clear that, that, uh, it, that the uh, reasons given by the Trump administration for putting that uh, question on on the uh, on on the census were Trump were trumped up, uh, <laughs> and uh, and so the, in the end uh, the chief justice went over to the other side and and said you know this the, even though the president's got and the administration has broad authority here and there have been citizenship questions on past census yeah. censuses they got to at least come up with some some sort of believable uh, reason and this this one about it being to help with enforcement of the voting rights act uh, doesn't pass muster. So basically, the, the court asked the White House to, to provide a good reason for why it wanted to add this question, are you a United States citizen, to the census long after the form was supposedly completed and, and ready to start to be printed. Yeah. And uh, what was what was the response from the White House to enforce the help help enforce the Voting Rights Act? Yeah, I mean, that, that was their their court, uh, what they offered in court as their reason for putting that census question on was to help with enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. But uh, I think, as the court pointed out, they came up with that rationale long after the political appointees already had decided they wanted to add the question. So it was like a post-hoc rationalization Mm -hmm. uh, and not really a reason for doing it. I I think, if I can jump in, just to give some context to that, um, what they were saying or what the, the government was saying is that the Department of Justice requested this information. Yeah. Okay. And but what happened is with this information that came out, it became clear that actually that the secretary had been attempting to get um, different departments in the government to say that they needed the citizenship question. And he so ultimately he was sort of canvassing got, and saying, yeah, yes. come on, Ask folks, me this one question, of you must right? want this yeah. question, right? Exactly. <laughs> and then he eventually he got the Department of Justice to bite. And so what happened is Roberts, in, in going back to what Bill said, you could see this as a bit of a rebuke if you wanted to. And that is that the that Justice Roberts basically says there's evidence this thing is completely pretextual here. Yeah. Um, and that is a pretty strong pushback in a lot of ways. Yeah, the Supreme Court doesn't say things like, 
you lied to me, right? But in, in this case, yeah. in, in this case, it did say that the explanation that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross provided was, I'm going to quote, incongruent with what the record reveals. <laughs> That's uh, as close as you get to a lie yeah, right. from the Supreme yeah. Court. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also that the, the evidence that they took a look at, quote, reveals a significant mismatch between the decision the secretary made and the rationale he provided. So in the context of this sort of rarefied error of the Supreme Court talking to the White House, are those fighting words, Mark? <laughs> I don't know that they're fighting <laughs> words, but I mean, I do think this is a pretty extraordinary because under the Administrative Procedures Act, the courts give a great deal of deference to administrative agencies. And here they're basically saying what you did was arbitrary and capricious, which is a really tough standard to meet. And it's a nice way of saying, yeah, liar, liar, pants on fire. I well, think. and I think something else that makes it even more interesting is that Robert says, well, it may not really be arbitrary and capricious, but here's, but it's pretextual, which well, is sort of this new. What, what does that mean? Um, pre- pretextual. It, we're, it's made up. Yeah, basically, it's basically it's lying. A, yeah, right. lying. It's it's a fancy word for a le- fancy legal word for that, but basically he sort of creates almost this additional part to this test, which I think now you may see, you know, bright lawyers obviously are going to sort of glob onto that and say, hmm, okay, so now I can talk in terms of pretext that that what the government is saying is just not true, and that's now something the Supreme Court has stated is a legitimate argument to try and go after the government with. And I do think what you said before uh, and what Bill kind of alluded to with Roberts, I mean, he he believes in the integrity and the and the reputation of the court. And and Trump is out there attacking the court, saying these judges, they're they're Republican or the Democratic and they're and they're they're not fair, basically. And and so he's attacking this institution. And while I think they might be inclined to support a lot of stuff. They 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 don't want to encourage that kind of um, that kind of behavior. This this you know what Trump is doing is going outside of what have been uh, norms that have been followed by other people, and th- I think that's upsetting to a lot of people, and particularly Roberts. And we see that in the relationship between between the executive branch and the court as well. I think so. Yeah, I think that's part of it. It's not the whole thing. I mean, at first, you know, Trump's reaction to to Robert's decision was to basically say he was going to put the question on anyway. Yeah. Uh, You know, sort of the president, uh, you know, which could have set up a constitutional crisis of the president not following what the Supreme Court says. You know, then he also took the fairly extraordinary steps of, like, uh, the Justice Department removed the line, you know, the professional lawyers who had been handling the case on behalf of the government so they could put in some people who would, you know, make, make their arguments uh, for why, why, why the, uh, the question should be added. So, uh, so yeah, before, those, before we move on, let's, let's yeah. talk about that, that last twist in this. You could make a, a, movie, a movie out of just this dispute, right? But after uh, the court gave, it, gave its final ruling and the Justice Department said, acknowledged publicly that this thing is over, a few hours later or the next day, they, there was a sudden 360, right? Because the president sent a Trump a tweet saying, no, no, that's not true. We're going to keep doing this anyway, basically. Right. Then the judge asks the lawyers, what's going on? The lawyers say, we don't know. No, we no. don't know. And then those lawyers are gone. Yeah. And that transcript is available. <laughs> They're saying things like, we're learning about this as you are. We don't yeah, know any right. more about it than, than the tweet. Right. Yeah. That's not the position you want to be in as a lawyer. I mean, you, you don't want your client... I mean, you're supposed to be handling the legal strategy, and then if your client starts saying stuff, you're, uh, you don't want to go up to a judge and say, I don't know, or I'm going to have to change my 
this was not true. That, that's all. But this matter is over now. The question will not be on the census, as far as we can tell. Well, I th it's not going to be on the, I think, on the form that's printed out by the Commerce Department. But I think there's the president said they were going to try to find some additional government information that would give them the answer to how many people are citizens and not citizens. But uh, and there might be maybe some additional forms sent to some people to answer that question. I don't know about that letter. Okay. Well, since, since we last met and convened a legal roundtable here, mm -hmm. uh, of course, former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens did die. Let's talk a little bit about his legacy on the court. Uh, would anyone care to, to, to wrap that up for us? Well, put, uh, put a bow on, uh, on a, mean, long, a long and storied history. Yeah, Justice Stevens was, like, was really from another era. I mean, another era of, uh, he, was an appoint, appoint, he was appointed by Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford said he was actually looking for the best legal mind he could find instead of what um, what presidents often since have been doing is either trying to find somebody who will uphold Roe versus Wade or, or vote to uh, throw out Roe versus Wade. Um, was I he mean, perceived as a liberal judge at no, the time of no. his nomination? No, he, he's a Republican judge. I mean, he, and he was... Uh, so he was uh, the appointee of a Republican president. Was considered to be, uh, you know, a very uh, well-respected Chicago lawyer. Uh, he he turned out to be very independent. And by the end of the by the as as years went on, and as I think thirty-four years or so that he was on the on the bench, uh, he really became. I mean, his results. Uh, the the result the result uh, that he would support would tend to be more one that would make liberals happy than than conservatives although not always the case I mean one 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 late case that he decided that liberals didn't appreciate was he upheld Indiana Indiana's law uh, requiring uh, voter ID you know which has then been sort of the basis that Republicans have used in a lot of states to try to hold down uh, the number of people who who, who can vote. Uh, so he was very he was criticized on that. Eventually, I think said he regretted uh, regretted that decision. He apparently Linda Greenhouse had an interesting you know the New York Times reporter you talked about before he used to cover the Supreme Court. Linda Greenhouse had an interesting remembrance of the day that the Supreme Court announced the Citizens United case. You know that's the one that says mm -hmm. corporations can make unlimited. Uh, contributions to support the election of a, of a candidate. Um, and he and uh, Justice Stevens strongly dissented. Uh, and you know, Justice Stevens says, why should they be able to do that when they can't run for office? I mean, corporations can't run for office. Why are we giving them the same kind of rights of, for political contributions? Uh, and uh, apparently he was he felt so strongly about this he was reading his dissent from the bench as justices do when they're really mad about uh, when they when they think it's an important case and they disagree or or, or when they're reading the opinion for the court and uh, he began he was stumbling over his words and um, um, maybe because he was so emotional maybe because he was 90 years old and, um, and he thought well you know it's time it's time to go um, the other case and that that he, one moment that dissent also I believe included that memorable phrase that American democracy is imperfect but no one would suggest that one of the problems is a lack of corporate money <laughs> yeah. yeah right right um, and uh, another another case where he wrote a very long dissent and felt very strongly that the court had acted uh, uh, incorrectly was in the in the Heller case uh, establishing an individual right, Second Amendment right uh, to have a weapon to protect yourself in your house. He he 
he's, he wrote a long dissent saying, hey, the found, that's not what the founding fathers meant by the Second Amendment. So he sort of took on Justice Scalia uh, mano a mano and, you know, you're well, – And, did a, and it did a historical, historical legal analysis, analysis, which was what Scalia does all the time and kind of – Yeah, let's read the history right, Steve, yeah, Stephen yeah. said, not the way you just want to – want to make it up. Um, and later, I think uh, Justice Stevens recommended that the Second Amendment be um, be repealed. Mm. Okay, we do need to squeeze in another break here, so we're going to do that. Uh, we will be back in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. It's our legal roundtable today, and I'm talking with legal experts Bill Freivigel, Mark Smith, and Jacqueline Kutnick-Bowder. Thank you so much for joining us. The minutes just fly by because there's, there's so much going on, and it's hard to even pick, pick what we can squeeze into this conversation, but we're trying to cover what we can. Um, so there is an explosive story breaking this week involving a St. Louis man who was convicted of murder in 1995. St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner filed a motion Monday for a new trial in the case of one Lamar Allen Johnson. Her office is saying he was wrongfully convicted for a host of reasons, including prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, one thing I'm just wondering, how unusual is it for the city prosecutor to, to file for a new trial in a murder case that it previously prosecuted and won? Do we, do we see that much? I think that's unprecedented. I don't think we've ever seen that. At least not, not in this case. I mean, I think, I think maybe uh, Jennifer Joyce, where, you know, where new evidence was raised. That's a good point. Yeah, because she, she had that innocence project working out of her office, right? She did. But this is sort of, a, yeah. I think, a, sort of a new Different take on, yeah. on, the, on, on that. This is uh, the, what uh, is it called, the uh, Conviction Integrity conviction Unit? Conviction Integrity Unit. unit. What's, what's the Conviction Integrity Unit? So they look at these old cases where there might be a question of wrongful conviction, um, and it's got outside uh, funding. Uh, what's really unusual is to, for the prosecutor to go to court and say, because of prosecutorial misconduct by our office, uh, by our own office, our own yeah. office, this should be this should be thrown out. Uh, I mean, I think there's uh, it's, it seems as though there's pretty strong evidence that uh, identification evidence was. Uh, you know, was was sort of uh, obtained by uh, by coercive means by the police, who uh, and maybe there was a an offer to actually compensate somebody for testifying wrongly about this guy being being the yeah, culprit. The, the key uh, eyewitness was was paid over forty two hundred dollars once he started cooperating with investigators. And a key point in in the motion here is that that was not disclosed. That in fact, defense. Council had requested repeatedly over the years, are there any records about payments? And uh, they were told that no, those, those records don't exist. Right. Which, and you've got to, you have to disclose, you know, exculpatory yeah. uh, evidence in a situation like that. I and mean, that's because a, a jury could easily find that the fact that someone was paid meant that their testimony is not correct. Right. And so right. that's why it's so incredibly important, because it means that the the whole uh, underpinning of the trial is is in question, because it was based primarily on this eyewitness identification. So it's not so much that the payment was improper in some way, but that it was kept a secret. Yeah, it was kept a secret, and the jury couldn't consider that when deciding whether or not this person was speaking truthfully when they identified um, Mr. Johnson. Yeah, and this and this conviction dates back to 1995. But but 
the offenses alleged in, in this this motion are, are not ancient history. They go up to 2014 because his, his attorneys had repeatedly requested this info and were told as recently as 2014 that that, that stuff did not exist. Uh, have we seen other cases like this in St. Louis of, of a, a wrongful murder conviction that was really cleared up eventually? I, I believe that there was a, another. Um, uh, the name of the defendant isn't coming to my mind, but it, as I recall, well, there definitely have been other Missouri uh, uh, persons who were convicted of murder, uh, some uh, some sentenced to uh, to death, who were cleared and left and got out of prison. And I think another one may have involved the city of St. Louis. So I cannot remember the name of the of the, of the person. Uh, but but it's it's this this case. The, you know the the way in which Gardner is requesting that. Uh, that Johnson get out of prison. This is a is a different kind of motion, you know, legal motion than has ever been been made before. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, they're sort of relying does the, does on. Does the law provide for for a, a new trial 20, 20, 25 years later? I mean, they're saying that because of exceptional circum that, that that courts can deal with situations that present exceptional circumstances, and that these are exceptional circumstances. So a fairly fairly broad kind of. Uh, you know, judicial power. We'll see. Does the length of time from the conviction to now play into this? Does it make it harder to get to the bottom of something like this? I see some furrowed brows, Jacqueline. Well, it, it can. You know, um, I mean, I think in this case, the, the gentleman who made the original identification is still alive. But what happens often... And he's been attempting to recant He's been for attempting years. Re- to recant yeah. for several years. But what happens often, the longer the, the, the longer the time period, the further you get away from uh, the actual incident, the harder it is to find people, the harder it is for people to remember what happened. There's been a a lot of research over the past decade or two about um, eyewitness testimony and how it becomes unreliable and more unreliable over time. Um, And so I think that, you know, I mean, we should be applauding Jennifer Gardner for for taking a look at, at these issues. Kim. For, I'm sorry, did I say Jennifer? Excuse me. <laughs> for Kim Gardner, um, for implementing the convic- the conviction integrity unit, um, and I think it's part of what she's attempting to do um, by sort of changing the approach of the prosecutor's office in the city of St. Louis. Um, so I think this is just one part of of her attempt to. Um, make the prosecutor's office uh, um, more, I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to say, but to to make the community more comfortable about some of the decisions that are being made by the prosecutor's office. I think that's a better way of putting it. I mean, Kip Gardner is one, one example of a trend that's you know, post-Ferguson trend. The Wesley Bell would be another uh, Kansas City prosecuting attorney, uh, a third of uh, uh, Philadelphia prosecuting attorney uh, it would be a fourth of these more def- uh, you know, defense friendly uh, prosecutors who are you know, looking at uh, possibility of wrongful convictions or looking at alternative ways, you know, at ways to not have people locked up prior to trial for as long a period of time. We could get more social justice issues rather right. than just a conviction rate. What's, what's the Midwest Innocence Project? 
think it's out of Northwestern, isn't it? And they have I offices. I don't think it's connected. I, oh, I could I be wrong, but I don't think yeah. it's connected with the Northwestern Innocence Project. That was oh, a okay. Northwestern Journalism Law School project. Right. Midwest Innocence Project, uh, I dealt with them somewhere. I used to be a reporter. And I, I, th- I think they have mainly been oriented towards uh, the, the potential innocence of, of death row inmates, mostly. Uh, uh, or people who are convicted of, of murders, but I haven't dealt with them in a while. So I seem to remember when I was at law school, we would have law students working in Jennifer Joyce's office, and they would go through old cases where they still had forensic evidence, and and using new techniques, just look for any problems, um, and they would have law students go over and help with that process. And I thought the Midwest Innocence Project was involved with that with Jennifer's office, but I'm not positive. You know. Yeah, they may have been. But, I mean, it's true. I think that Jennifer Joyce did have that going on. So it's not like she was blind to the yeah, right. to the possibility of but I think wrongful convictions. obviously doing it as well. Yeah. And I do want to mention that the lawyer who prosecuted the case originally, a man named Dwight Warren, um, has called this motion nonsense. Uh, he was a well-respected uh, assistant circuit attorney from 1977 to 2017. He left that office shortly after Gardner was elected. Uh, he's also a veteran of, of the St. Louis Police Department and a Vietnam veteran. Um, let, let's let's change gears if, if we if we can. I'd like to say something to our, our great crew over in the studio there, um, over in the, over in the control studio. Would you would you play Gloria? Okay, so uh, when I said play Gloria a few moments ago, I, I didn't make any money off of that. So I, I'm safe from the cease and desist letters a Philadelphia bar called Jack's NYB has been sending to vendors who have been using that phrase to sell merchandise. Um, this was originally reported by the Missouri Lawyers Weekly. For those listening now who live in around the city and, and haven't heard, a handful of St. Louis Blues players were at that bar midseason when they noticed that Laura Brannigan's Gloria, which we just heard a few moments of, would get everybody up and dancing and the Bar patrons would yell, play Gloria, and the song became the team's victory song. It went from worst to first over the course of half a season. Um, So the bar in question is claiming a trademark on that phrase, play Gloria. Uh, Does it have a point? Um, I don't think it does. Um, And as, you know, I put myself through law school as a bartender. A bunch of drunks (laughs) in a bar chanting play Gloria (laughs) is not uh, uh, first-to-use uh, rights, you know, for commercial use. You know, it's just a bunch of drunks. And so, do, well, do you have we, a, we haven't measured their intoxication levels. Yeah, well, it uh, is a Philadelphia listen, bar. So we'll, I was, we'll I take was a bartender for, for a long time. Okay. If you're in a bar, you're drunk. Yeah. <laughs> and so, the the um, first of all, I'm not even sure this phrase is trademark protectable. But then, even if it were, and I think that's a big if, because what what, what product are you thinking of? You know. Um, that's what trademarks are supposed to be for. And, and then it would be first to use. And, and I don't think, I mean, you know, the Blues started using it. They started putting it. I, re- I went to my first hockey game in 10 years, saw Brill Freivogel there. And um, I saw the first time play Gloria stuff there. So that was like in February or something, right? Um, and this is when the bar said they started doing it. So I think the Blues have, and like I said, I don't think they put it on shirts or anything. So I think I just think this is a nice way for a little corner bar to get a lot of publicity 
but I don't think they're going to get anything out of it. I, I could see a bunch of drunks thinking around, and there's a lawyer there who comes up with this idea, you ought to, and it, all it costs is a couple of stamps. Yeah, I, I agree with Mark. I, you can't, you can't trademark. They can't. That bar can't trademark uh, this phrase. I mean, it does, it's got to be a trademark. It has to some way identify the goods. Goods or services, uh, right? Goods or services of the bar. Well, for, does, for lack of a better word, how, how original does an expression have to be to merit uh, protection, trademark protection? Yeah, that's the other thing. You, I mean, that's why the drug companies are great about this, coming up with trademark names. They just make up, you know, Cialis and all these made-up words, and it, it, that's very trademarkable. Um, but just coming up with something like, you know, Mark's Coffee Cups, that's, a, that's much tougher to trademark because it's not a unique expression. It, it, it's, it's just tougher. Well, what's, what's the difference between, like, say, Play Gloria and Where's the Beef? You know, one of those is very identified with the Wendy's chain, but it's still three simple words that we use in our everyday conversation. It doesn't sound that original off the top of the head. What makes something able to be protected like that? I mean, golden arches aren't that, aren't, yeah. aren't, aren't that uh, unique. I mean, it's, but, but, but it's got to be something that like, identifies some goods, and, and this yeah. doesn't identify the goods. You could claim, they, the bar could claim it, that the, the T-shirt that they did with Plagoria, the, the way they designed that T-shirt, that that should have copyright protection. Yeah, that's, that's another a form, a different form of intellectual property from a, a trademark. Un- unique expression of an idea, so that that would work. But yeah. that would, but that wouldn't keep some uh, the blues, for example, uh, doing a T-shirt that had a different expression of Plagoria, um, you know, a different uh, way of expressing it. So, uh, so they they're not going to get anywhere on copyright either. And the opportunity cost of, of a law firm sending out some cease and desist letters. Pretty low. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and like, they might get someone to pay to, to buy. as well. Yeah. Or, they, or they pay. get free publicity or they, or they get yeah. people to come to their Which bar. Which we're giving yeah. them right now. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, if, if folks in, in our listening area are looking for somewhere in Philadelphia to start right. this they probably consider this a, a, a landmark anyway at this point. The Blues fans might want to be right. trekking there anyway. No, they right. don't want to go there because they're trying to keep the Blues. Okay. I think we should be boycotting it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. St. Louis Philadelphia isn't calling for a boycott. Yeah, yeah. Nor, <laughs> nor is Mark Smith. <laughs> okay, right. okay. I mean, you're welcome. To yeah, him. yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's turn to another story that we have been following at St. Louis Public Radio and here on the Legal Roundtable, uh, a man named John Rollo. We might call him an aspiring marketing executive, perhaps. The, the Post-Dispatch refers to him as a Steve Stenger crony. The Riverfront Times called him Stenger's fancy friend, which doesn't sound that bad to me. I wouldn't mind being someone's fancy fancy friend. <laughs> that, that's okay. With. Uh, well, in, in any case, Rollo donated thousands of dollars to Stenger's campaigns for county executive. And in exchange, Stenger and the former head of the St. Louis Economic Development Partnership, Sheila Sweeney, they directed a marketing consulting contract to Mr. Rollo, though he had no relevant experience. And Rollo has admitted to this in court. He pleaded guilty to bribery, mail fraud, and theft of honest services in U.S. District Court. First, just uh, what's, what's theft of honest services? Well, it's actually a fairly controversial uh, charge that's uh, used in a lot of these public corruption cases. Um, And, uh, you know, there have been some there have been some judges. uh, I mean, Justice Scalia himself was not a big fan of of the charge of theft of uh, of uh, honest services. Uh, um, It's but it's a way in which uh, it's a way in which prosecutors, pretty often federal prosecutors, 
can uh, file public, uh, you know, corruption cases where they say, you know, they've let's say they've got some sort of uh, email exchange or cross cross boundaries, cross state boundaries. Uh, a telephone exchange that shows somebody's making some sort of uh, corrupt deal, uh, you know, like to get a contract that they don't have any kind of, uh, you know, reason other than political support to get, as in this case, and then you can you can say it's wire, you got wire fraud to uh, to steal people, the public's expectation that their public officials will be honest. Mm-hmm. Mark, this is there's some dispute over over this charge in this case no, specifically. I, or just I think this is our friend Hal Goldsmith, who's a prosecutor. Who you don't ever want to have Hal Goldsmith calling you saying, <laughs> I, "I want to talk to you about something I'm going to be bringing at you." He's a very good prosecutor, and and it sounds like when you read the, I just read the Stanger indictment. I didn't read the other ones, but it was clear that they had all kinds of emails, text messages. So they they have these folks. Um, dead to right, which is why I think everyone's pleading to it. Um, and it's just a sad, I mean, it's a sad situation, I think. Just, you know, these people were, there was no reason for Stanger to be doing this kind of stuff. And to it, it's just disappointing. And it undermines people's I mean, this wasn't cloak and dagger kind of stuff, right? I mean, this seems like a pretty clear quid pro quo that reminds me of, you know, the big city bosses of 150 years well, ago I, or something. Uh, is there a sense that there might be more arrangements like this out there that, that are waiting to be discovered? Well, I mean, the, you know, the Rod Blagojevich case was very much like this. Mm-hmm. I think I think it even involved— Governor of uh, Illinois. Of Governor of Illinois. He's still in prison, uh, I think, isn't he? Um, and um, so I, I believe there was a theft of—, of uh, uh, you know, expectation of honest services. I mean, in that I case would not be well. surprised in the Stinger case if it's not over. If there are other people, I mean, there. Once you start digging, and you get somebody's phone records, there may be other potential. Um, yeah, and of course, we don't know that to be the case. No. But given the brazenness of this arrangement, um, it's it's fair to ask around. This was this was yes, yeah, so brazen yeah. and so just clear cut. It, it was so brazen that I can't be like you. I can't be. Yeah. Uh, I can't feel sorry for these guys. I mean, they were just they're just stealing from the people, mm-hmm. uh, and and they should go to jail. Jacqueline, do you well, want something? Well, I wanted to say the fact that you know these um, pleas have come really, really quickly too. I mean, yeah. this is normally you don't see someone charged and then pleading as quickly as, as we're seeing now. And so, I mean. It ma- it makes me wonder at least if they're also you know potentially have more evidence that they can provide to the government and that that might uh, be part of why they're pleading so quickly is that then they can turn states evidence so to speak and um, and that uh, how Goldsmith might be able to go after some other people based on on what they uh, tell him and uh, Rollo, we're expecting him to be sentenced in October. What kind of legal situation is he facing at this I point? I think they were saying something like two years uh, could be. And so my understanding is once you are over a year for federal, then you can get um, probation. You can get, what is it, good time served so they could take some off. Um, but you know, he's looking at, I think, I, th- I thought with Sweeney it was like a year and Stinger was, I don't remember. He could face more than two years. Okay. And we and we've we've you know we've been following this over over the the weeks and months and just re- remind us uh, where what Steve Stenger's legal situation is at, at this point. He's pled guilty too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All three. Yeah, they have. They, none of them have been sentenced yet, yeah. as far as I. So I think it's all in the fall. 
So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yeah, indeed. And yeah, these these are developments we keep following. And um, let's take a moment to just check back in quickly with St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner, who we, we mentioned earlier. And we just have a few moments, but we, we do want to mention that uh, the situation with Eric Wrighton, former governor, she has admitted that she did the she said that she did the right thing when she charged then Governor Eric Greitens with a felony last year. Um, but this comes after the person she hired to investigate Greitens, a former FBI agent named William Tizabee, was indicted by a grand jury for several felonies, including perjury, evidence tampering. He has pleaded not guilty and is fighting the charges. My one question is, with all these kinds of stories circling around, does it get hard for that office to just keep doing its job? I mean, I don't know from the inside, but I can't. I have to imagine that it is it's very hard. Uh, and... Um, you know, Kim Gardner de- defended herself. She did, she was not charged, um, but but I, I believe the indictment said that she knew that her investigator, the former FBI agent William Tisby, she knew that he had taken notes while interviewing the you know the victim of the of the of the photo of the nude photograph that the governor. Mm-hmm. Uh, allegedly took. Which uh, was never produced. Which was never produced, right. Uh, But that she, that, that she knew Tisby had taken the notes and, and that maybe she'd even told Tisby to claim he hadn't taken the notes and not to turn over the information. Uh, So she, she's not charged, but she was sort of implicated. The the, the political team in our newsroom does continue, continue to follow that. And we'll we'll, we'll keep checking in on that. But we we want, we wanted to just to mention that, but we are running out of time here. So I do want to thank my guests for joining me today. Bill Freivigal, professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Mark Smith, associate vice chancellor and dean for career services at Washington University. All these academic types like to come in and talk. Yeah, yeah, we, and we bring really big titles with us when we do. Long yeah. titles. And Jacqueline, Jacqueline cutting Bowder, Bowder, excuse me, Bowder, managing attorney for civil rights and systemic litigation at Arch City Defenders. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.